eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah and the, the daughter of Ad, uh, Adiah of uh, Buscoth. <laughs> you don't know if I said it right or not. You have no idea. You're just laughing because you assume I said it wrong, aren't you? And he did that, which is right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David, his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. It came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. And to the carpenters and builders and masons. And to buy timber and hew stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of them that do the work, that have the, uh, the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe shooed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Do you notice what just happened here in this passage? <laughs> the book of the law was rediscovered. The Bible was just found in the temple. It had been lost and now it's found. I mean, how could that be possible? How could that even happen? I mean, this was Judah. These were God's people. Surely they had a copy of the law accessible in each bookstore, anywhere you turn. They had to have the Word of God, right? No, that wasn't the case at all. How insanely unbelievable is this? That God's people, in their very temple, where did they worship the God that created them and the God that delivered them out of Egypt, the God that gave them great hope, help, and prosperity? Now here they are in that very temple without a Bible. In order to understand how they had arrived at this point, we're going to have to consider their history slightly. Hilkiah, years, or excuse me, Hezekiah, some years before, was a great king. He had reigned on the throne of Judah and he had obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. He had served and was marked with righteousness. He walked with God and was so intimate and so close to the Lord that when it came time for him to die, he asked God for, for more time. He asked God for 15 more years of life and God granted him those 15 years. Although he was given those 15 more years, we find that before it's over with, things don't end up probably the way we had hoped or would have liked. It was during those 15 years that his son Manasseh was born. Manasseh was probably born about three years into that 15-year extension. And so for 12 years, Manasseh is being raised now. 
Now, of course, Hezekiah is a king over a nation. Hezekiah is probably extremely busy, his schedule full, and he probably has some men and women looking over his son, literally mentoring and raising. The unfortunate thing was, is that obviously, as we're going to see in Manasseh's life, he didn't turn out for God, so he obviously had some very negative, very evil influence in his life. So for 12 years now, he's being trained up. He's being mentored by men and women who are not of the same faith and belief of Hezekiah, his father. And Hezekiah dies. At the age of 12, Manasseh now takes his place on the throne of Judah. And for 55 years, he would rule and reign in that nation. Sadly, the reign of Manasseh is not marked with godliness. It's not marked in faith or fullness of blessing. Instead, it is marked by idolatry. It is marked by sin. It is marked by blood. Manasseh was one of the most vile and wretched kings that Judah would ever have. He forsook God. And he embraced idols. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 4 through 6, a chapter before our passage, it says, And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Can you imagine that? He built altars in the house of the Lord to idols. Of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name, uh, my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observe time. So what we're saying is, is that he literally sacrificed children to the gods. He observed times. He used enchantments. He dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He brought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. That's Manasseh and his reign. Following his 55-year reign, however, his son Ammon ruled. For two years, his son would rule. And for two years, his son would follow in his father's footsteps. Leading in the exact same evil way that Manasseh did. After two years, his servants assassinated him. And now Ammon is dead, the son of Manasseh. And now Ammon's son will now rise to the throne. And his name is none other than the name we read early on in chapter 22, Josiah. Josiah. So what we have then is Hezekiah, a great king, who reigns 29 years But his last 15 were not considered the same as his first. He dies and his son Manasseh assumes the throne. He spends 55 years tearing down everything that Hezekiah had built up. His son Ammon follows in his evil footsteps for just two short years and then dies. And now we come to Josiah. He's only eight years old when he assumes the throne. Eight years old. There might be some eight-year-olds in here today. Is there any, any ten-year-olds or below? Would you stand up, would you please? Go ahead, stand up. Stand up, please. Oh, he is standing. <laughs> you you want to know what? How old are you? He's ten. Take two years off of him. 
Now think about that. Eight-year-old, an eight-year-old is going to assume the throne. An eight-year-old is going to be the king of Judah. I was just messing with you. You're really tall for your age. However, (laughs) compared to your dad, you're not very tall. Okay, that's all I was really getting at. Because being so young, being so young, he's got a lot of life yet, or at least a lot of a lot of growing to do. Thank you very much. Think about that. An eight-year-old now, Josiah, takes the throne. This Josiah obviously had some godly influence in his life. He obviously had some men and women. Unlike Manasseh, he had some mentors. He had some guides that taught him some of the principles of the Word of God. Now, we know that for 55 years, Manasseh's reign was marked with evil and sin. We know that Ammon followed in his footsteps, but along the way, there were obviously still a faithful remnant to the Lord. And someone in that regime got a hold of Josiah early on in his life and began to mentor, encourage, and to raise him with some principle. He takes and assumes the throne at the age of eight years old. And then just eight years later, at 16, he would assert his authority and begin to stomp out idolatry in the nation. Can you imagine that? Are there any 16-year-olds in our midst today? Any 16-year-olds? Any 15-year-olds? They're not standing up. They're a bunch of wimps. There they go. Finally, some men stand up. I was looking for ladies too. Some of you girls could have stood. I was just looking for somebody that's even close to 16. Notice these guys now. There they are. You could put Josiah on their name, on their heads. These would be the Josiahs. And at that tender age, they were already leading their nation to stomp out idolatry. You imagine that. Okay, here you are, 30 years old, 40 years old, 50, and some 16-year-old says, guess what? We're doing away with idolatry. No more worshiping the idols. How would you respond? After all those years of doing things your way, here he is, Josiah. You may sit down, JJ's. That particular work wouldn't be completed, stomping out idolatry, till after the book had been found. But what do we learn from all this history? What do we get as we look back on the history of Israel? How do, what do we finally come to? Where does the rubber meet the road? Well, let me say it this way. It only takes one generation to lose the Bible, the Word of God. One generation. I'm positive that Hezekiah had the book. I'm positive that he had studied it and that he had looked into it, that he had allowed it to make a difference in his life. We see evidence of that in his reign and rule. But all of a sudden, in one generation, just Messiah, 55 years later, now the book is lost. Now there's no evidence of it, even in the temple of God. Take your Bible, if you would, look over at Judges chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. Judges chapter 2, verse 8. In Judges chapter 2, Israel has wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And now Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. They will battle. They will fight. They will obtain. They will occupy the land. But then all of a sudden, in the book of Judges, we're going to see that Joshua also dies and goes off the scene. Judges chapter 2 verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, 
the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Ares, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaish. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Isn't that amazing? And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of, their, of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. I mean, one generation away from, from, from this particular man of God, just one generation, and all of a sudden now, we're no longer serving God. We've forgotten everything God's done for us. And now here they are, serving idols. Amazing. Not just serving, but sacrificing to them. I guess you can't serve them without sacrificing to them. We're just one generation away. One generation away from losing the Bible, from losing the Word of God, from losing the faith. Isn't that amazing? Well, it seems so much more fragile when we say it that way, doesn't it? I came across an article, and it was entitled, Education Expert. It's an education expert. Removing Bible, prayer from public schools has caused decline. Removing Bible, prayer from public schools has caused decline. It was written on August the 14th, 2015, or published at least on the 14th of August, 2015. No, 14th, excuse me. I wrote that wrong. I knew something was wrong when I looked at that. 2014. It uh, was uh, placed in cnsnews.com. It says, it, it opens up by saying, education expert William Jennies, Jennies, uh, now this one's a tough one, J-E-Y-N-E-S, Jennies. Genes. See, I learned hooked on phonics, okay? At least I can try to sound it out. The rest of you don't even have a clue. Okay, so genies. Okay, but anyway, we understand. He's supposed to be the expert. He said on Wednesday that there is a correlation between the decline of U.S. public schools and the U.S. Supreme Court's 1962 and 1963 decision that school-sponsored Bible reading was unconstitutional. Now, why? He says there's a correlation. Now, listen, this is not a professed Christian man. This is a, a secular expert in education. Here's what he says, quote, one can, one can argue, and, ha- and some have, that the decision by the Supreme Court in a series of three decisions back in 1962 and 1963 to remove Bible and prayer from our public schools may be the most spiritually significant event in our nation's history over the course of the last, get this, 55 years. See, when I was looking at um, uh, the passage and I was running through it, I thought, you know what? If I take 55 minus 2015, where's that put me? Huh, 1960. And I thought, wow, look how far we've come. And so I did a little quick search. You know how we have those computers now. And I found this article and I thought, hey, somebody with as good a mind as mine. At least he puts it in a better way. He, he makes it sound really good here. Because <clears throat> I was just going to say, look, it's been 55 years. But he goes, look, let me give you some statistics. So I like that. Here we go. Now watch it. Some of you think, boy, he is a self-absorbed, arrogant person. 
Oh, I'm just joking with you. If you don't know me, you need to stick around. Come next service and you'll find that I'm really just down to earth. But anyway, and then come the next week and you'll really start to understand that. So I expect to see you every Sunday now from now on. Okay. Okay. Now watch this. So he goes, okay, it's probably the most significant spiritual event in our nation's history over the course of the last 55 years, he said. Now watch what happens here. He goes on to say, on June 25, 1962, the United States Supreme Court decided in Engel uh, versus Vital that a prayer approved by the New York Board of Regents for use in schools violated the First Amendment because it represented, uh, represented establishment of religion. In 1963, in Abington School District versus Shemp, the, the, the court decided against Bible readings in public schools along the same lines. Since, now watch this, since 1963, Jenny's says there have been five negative developments in the nation's public schools. Here they are now. Five negative developments in the nation's public school from an educator from a secular, secular educator. Watch what he says. He's an expert. Academic achievement has plummeted, including SAT scores. Increased rate of of out-of-wedlock births. Increase in illegal drug use. Increase in juvenile crime and the deterioration of school behavior. All of those are, those are facts, by the way, of the change that's transpired since they've taken prayer and Bible reading out of schools. Okay, those are some of the things that have happened. He said, again, there's five negative developments. It's not just his opinion. He could, he could show you the data. He goes on to say, so we need to realize that these actions do have consequences. Jens, Jennings, or whatever his name is, I still can't say it, Genies. What, how is it? Can anybody tell me? Uh, there's te- there's got to be some teachers in here. J-E-Y-N-E-S. How would I say that? Janas? Do I hear? Oh, no, okay. How about, how about we just go, the doctor... The professor at California, now watch this now, the doctor, the expert, professor at California State College in Long Beach, and senior fellow at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, said this, when we remove that moral fiber, that moral emphasis, that is what can result. Other facts include a comparison between the top five Complaints of teachers from 1940 to 1962. Here they are now. 1940 to 1962, he states what their greatest complaints were in the, public, in the school system. Talking. <laughs> chewing gum. Making noise. Running in the halls. And getting out of turn in line. Those wicked kids. And this and in the, in the day, that was a problem. That, those were the problems. Those were the ones that teachers listed the most from 1940 to 1962. Hold on. Hold on. Here they are now. 63 to present. Now, here's the problem, the comparison. Top five complaints of teachers. Rape. Robbery. Assault. Burglary. And arson. <laughs> I don't. That's from 63 to present, he claims. Now, I, I don't know. I'm sure that there are many others that may fall in those categories. But can you imagine stuff like that going on? 
It's crazy. These are things our kids are worried about, too. There can be no doubt that as a nation, we have noted significant decline in our moral and our religious climate. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about it at all. The fact is that in the last 55 years in our history as a nation, we have only gone further and further away from God and the Word of God. It's faded. And we find ourselves today in the throes of idolatry and moral bankruptcy. That's where we're at today. Just 55 years ago, it wasn't quite like that. It's changed a lot in 55 years in America. You know what? I believe today that the greatest need in our culture and our society is the same as it was back in Josiah's day. I believe today that we need to rediscover the book. I'm convinced of it. And on this Father's Day, as you come to Community Baptist Temple, I want you to understand that you can go ahead and get a better paying job and make more money. You can buy nicer shoes and clothes for your kids. You can put them in more upscale, more uh, elite type schools. You can put them on the finest baseball teams and let them travel around the country and find fellowship and fun. You can do all of those things. But let me tell you something. What your children need more than anything out of you as a dad today is for you to rediscover that book. How do we do that then? I don't have much time today. But literally in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to show you from the Word of God, just give you some idea, three things that we can do to rediscover that book today. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all that you've done for us. Bless us now in these next few minutes. Help us, Lord, to glean and to grow and to learn what you'd have for us. We need to rediscover the book. Help us to see how simple that can be. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, we note that Josiah is 18 years into his reign. And then in the midst of that, and and, and then at that 18-year mark, he commissions or he assigns some priests to repair the temple. Now, again, remember, they still haven't discovered the book yet. So here he is now, 18 years into his reign. He's 8 plus 18 is 26. And he says, listen, I want you to go there to the temple, and I want you to... um, Repair the temple. What, what I think he's really saying is, and what I think we could kind of boil that down to today would be, make church a point of emphasis. It's important. Josiah thought it was important. The temple's in shambles, and he says, we need to focus some attention. We need to focus some energy on the house of God. Amen. So if we're going to rediscover the book, the first thing is we need to make church a point of emphasis. In the book of Hebrews, we know what it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Boy, I'll tell you, church is an important aspect of the life of a human being, according to God. It's not just a Christian. The fact is that when God created you, He created you with a vacuum and a void in your heart. And God says the only thing and the only one that can fill that void is the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I say that we find him and we see him discovered in the house of God. We recognize the fact that in this place we emphasize God and we emphasize morality and we emphasize the word of God. This is a place you need to be. This is a place your family needs to be. Make church a point of emphasis. You say, why should I though? I understand maybe what you're saying. I get it a little bit. But what's the big deal? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, would you please? 
If you're a child of God today, especially, I mean, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you name the name of Christ and claim to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, having being in the family of God, then let me tell you, you cannot become what God wants you to be without this place. Look what it says, Ephesians 4. Verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teacher and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I believe, according to the Word of God, that He gave these apostles and prophets and evangelists, as He says, pastors and teachers. Why? What purpose? What for? For the perfecting of the saints. We see that we are perfected in the house of God. We notice also that He gave them to us for the work of the ministry, so that we can perform the Christian life and live according to the Word of God. We also note that He says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He's saying the building up of the body of Christ that enables us to persevere and to remain faithful and steadfast in the things of God and the Word of God. I believe and note from the Word of God simply that the house of God is a place where we as believers are perfected, where we are able to perform, where we're enabled to persevere and given the strength to overcome in the world in which we live. Therefore, without the church, we are unable to be perfect perfected in our Christian life. We're unable to perform as God has intended us to perform. We're unable to accomplish the purpose for which He placed us on this earth without the church. And we're unable to continue in it without the church. Now, let me say this. And I'm a little concerned about the direction that we're going. And I'm a little concerned about what we do in that sound booth even on, on services. We have what's called live streaming today. You know what the temptation is? It's to stay home when you're running a little late. The temptation is just to kind of kick back and go, well, I'll just watch it on live stream. I'll just kick back. I'll relax. And, and I just don't feel like going to church today. I'm just a little under weather. I've had to blow my nose three times since I got back home from work today. And I feel like a cold's coming on. I'll stay and watch it on live stream. Or I'll just sit and turn on the television set and watch a TV preacher. You know, there's a problem with that. Hey, listen, I don't have a problem if you're sick at home. It doesn't bother me if you are stuck in an airport somewhere and your flight was delayed. I remember watching the services on a Wednesday night, my wife and I, in an airport. As we were coming back from Cozumel, our flight was, was detained. We were unable to get back here. We sat in that place. We plugged it in. We watched the services right there in the middle of an airport. Man, praise God for that. But wait a second, what if I get home and it's just like, man, I'm running late. It's almost 10 till 7. Church starts at 7 and I'd get there a few minutes late and I just don't feel like going in late. I don't feel like rushing and getting dressed up and I don't feel like, I'll just watch it on live stream. You know what the danger is? I'm sorry, but I'm just going to tell you, you're not in the church. You're not here. Do you know that it's just not getting preached to? It's not just getting some teaching. It's the fellowship. It's the believers together. It's us recognizing and seeing that we're in it together. That, listen, we're all dealing with problems and that we're all facing obstacles. And that when we come together here, we draw off one another and we are encouraged by one another. Amen. 
We lift up our voices in praise to God and we sit around and watch and listen to the specials and we say, God, thank you so much for allowing me to see that there are others in the battle. I'm not alone. And I do believe that as, as effective as television can be and as effective as radio is and as effective as, as live streaming can be, I also think it can be a detriment and I believe that it can be a negative in truly perfecting the saints. Because you need to be in your place to become what God wants you to be. Someone says, well, I don't agree with you. You don't have to agree with me. You don't. You're allowed to have any opinion you like. But I'm just watching what's going on. And I'm seeing the level of our Christianity plummet. I'm seeing a shallowness to believers in faith that, that has, even in my lifetime, is, 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 is unbelievable. I mean, if, if I asked all of you to stand up and you could not sit till you could quote me four verses. Quote me four verses. How many would still be standing at the end of this service? Trying to figure out or find four. And I'm not talking about Jesus wept. I mean, how many would still be standing? Well, let me see. I, 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 for God so loved the world that he gave us only him. So who so believed? I, got, I think I got that one. Let me quote John 3.16. All right, give me another one. All right, give me another one. All right, give me another one. <laughs> right, preacher. Now, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be negative or mean or nasty. But if, if I gave you four math problems today, and, and you couldn't answer but one, one plus one equals two, and the rest of you couldn't get, let me ask you something. Would you be a good math student? Well, listen to me. This is our book. We can't quote more than one little verse out of it. What's that make us? This is what we live by. And if you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, this is everything you're depending and you're, you're placing your life in His hands. And you don't even know what it says. You're taking my word for it. <clears throat> I, I like to believe myself to be an honest person and sincere and, and, and conscientious. But let me tell you something. I wouldn't trust me with my eternity in that sense. I'm, I'm not even trusting me with my eternity. I'm trusting Him. And you need to trust Him too. With your life and your eternity. So, first of all, make church a point of emphasis. Make it important. Dad, make it a, a, a big time in your, church, your house. Big time. Number two, clean up the house of God. Oh, you say, what do you mean? Well, second thing that they did, okay, first of all, he, we said that he, he assigned some priests to repair the temple. Next thing he does, that in the midst of the repairing, they had to clean it up. You don't repair it till you clean it up. Okay, so he makes it a point of, of emphasis. He says, we've got to repair the house of God. But you don't walk in and start fixing it up till you clean it up. You've got to clean it up. You say, what do you mean clean the house of God up? Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you something. We need to remove the worldliness from the church. Worldliness has got to be out. It's got to be out of the church. If we're really going to rediscover the word, if it's going to be that which is life-changing, then it's going to have to, it starts at the house of God. We need to have a cleaning up. And, and I'm not saying just our church. I'm talking across the board in Christianity today. Listen, church ought to be church, not a nightclub. It shouldn't be a concert. That, that's not church, folks. 
Preaching needs to be center stage and not just some personality or some performance. It's to be the Word of God. That's what should take center stage. The church is supposed to be a soul-winning station. People should be going, we should be going after people. We should be trying to win people. It ought to be our desire, our goal as a believer, to see others born again, others saved, others escaping hell and going to heaven. It would seem today, just from observation, that a number of ministries have made serving the people a greater priority than serving the Lord. I mean, this leisurely, this lackadaisical, this apathetical approach to worship does not do our God justice. Come as you are, leave as you were, is not getting it done. I like to be comfortable, preacher. I like to be able to relax. Give me a latte mocha as we do the service and a bag of chips and I would be much more apt to sit and listen to you. Well, obviously, I'm not, or what's coming from this pulpit isn't the most important thing to you then, if you need that to listen. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry, I have no problem with a latte mocha, even though I wouldn't drink it for nothing. But let me tell you something, when it's preaching time, it's preaching time. I think the Lord deserves a little better from us who have experienced His, I mean, miraculous salvation. From us who have claimed to experience His many blessings. I think He deserves something a little bit better than just dragging in on Sunday morning for a few minutes and dragging back out. I think church ought to be important. And I think we ought to clean the house of God up. I think when we enter His presence, it ought to be a big deal. And it shouldn't just be a casual encounter. Like I said already, the main thing ought to be preaching. I I, I like soft chairs. And I like even bar stools. But if this is what I do, hey, everybody, let's talk a little bit. Let me tell you about Jesus today. You know, the Lord was good. He, uh, you know, he turned water to wine. And it was a blessing. God's good to us today. Let's just rap a little bit about Jesus. No, that's too casual. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, I, that's, all, that's all right at a Bible study to sit around and talk. That's all right maybe at a, at a, at a, a restaurant and sitting around talking about Jesus. But when it's preaching time, I'm not talking about when it's time to get to the serious business, it's time to lay it down on the line. Amen. I mean, he says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He doesn't say rap. He doesn't say talk. He doesn't say, just relax. He says, preach. And it's time that we get back to some old-fashioned preaching. And finally, last, certainly not least, while they're cleaning up, they rediscover the book. They rediscovered the book. You know, we've got to dust off our Bibles and we need to use them. That's, that's what I think that's getting at. I mean, make church a point of emphasis, Dad. Let's clean up this place. Let's expect it to be a place when we go, we're going to hear some preaching. We're going to hear some biblical sound teaching. We're not going to get this lackadaisical, well, we're meeting with God again. You know, no, we're like, hey, we're going to church, man. We're going to meet with God today. You should expect to meet with God. And finally, let's just dust off those Bibles and start using them then.
they found and they rediscovered the book. It had been there a long time. It had been in that temple for years and years and years, but nobody even knew it was there. It was covered in dust. And you may have a few Bibles, dads, that are covered in dust. It's time to open them back up. It's time to dust them off and get back into the book. To rediscover the Word of God again. To learn to meditate on the Word again. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. I mean meditating on it, thinking it through, giving it some consideration. Not only that, but memorizing it. Thy Word have I hid in mine heart, the psalmist says, that I might not sin against thee. And then finally, applying the Word of God. Be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We need to meditate and memorize and apply the Word of God. We need to dust that book off. We need to get it out of the back seat of the car. We need to get it off the coffee table. We need to get it in our heart. We need to do something with the Word of God. It's time, dads, for us to rediscover the Word. To rediscover this blessed book. To lead our families in devotion. To teach them how to live for Christ. and What it means to have victory in our lives. Josiah, an eight-year-old, did it. I think every dad in the room could if he really put his heart and mind to it. I really do. But it just depends on what's really important to you. And on this Father's Day, I beg you, I plead with you, rediscover that book. If you have lost it or if it's gotten dusty, rediscover it. There's nothing better you could do for your family than to find this book and start applying it in your life. It'll change your life, your marriage, and your home. It'll change the future. And that's what this nation needs today, is a group of men rediscovering the book. Father, we come to you. We thank you again, Father, for just this simple truth that we've learned today and for the Word of God and how practical it is. And Lord, I thank you, Father, for the men of God that we do have in this place. And thank